Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. Welcome to Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers Podcast. Today, our guest is the fabulous Josh, who runs the Substack and Twitter. JRR is joking. Also, probably other stuff. Facebook, maybe? Insta? I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm on all the a lot of the social media sites uh most of them under the josh carlos josh uh handle but yes jr joking is uh what kind of unites them all so is that like william carlos williams it is yeah very okay. uh, very good i i have a soft spot for that meme uh that's taken you know i've, I've taken the plums that were in the ice box and so when i was thinking about a uh an account and this is kind of getting into uh, everything with Twitter, but I wasn't quite at the place where I was more Tolkien themed. So I was like, "What? What's something that I could use?" And that was that. So, gotcha. Well, I hope the the plums in the ice box were delicious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my husband just picked a bunch of them off of our tree last night, so oh, <laughs> we have a bumper crop this year. Yes. Um, so I invited Josh onto our podcast because I'm a giant Tolkien nerd. And um, it was exciting to find out that not only did he run a very, very funny um, series of social media accounts that are Tolkien themed, he also is a Christian minister from what I understand. Yes, yes. So I thought this would be perfect because we don't really have any particular theme. We just invite people we like. So <laughs> yeah, sounds fun to me, yeah. So Josh, I would like to invite you to tell us as much or as little as you are feel comfortable with about your spiritual journey. Of course. Um, and first of all, thank you so much for the invite. Uh, very uh, exciting to be able to talk about just Tolkien in general and faith. And uh, so just a, a pleasure there. Um, so as far as my personal uh, spiritual journey, I grew up in a Christian household. And I grew up kind of just in that subculture um, bubble because my family was religious. We went to private Christian school. Uh, that was all the way through um, through high school. I went to two separate, like an elementary and then a junior, senior high school. So like kind of everybody that I knew was a Christian and I was, I'm the oldest of six kids. And so part of what came out of all of that was a little bit of uh, people pleasing in the sense of like uh, the, you know, the implicit message, no one ever said this to me, but the implicit message was, Hey, you can, um, if you can take care of things yourself, that's good. You know, like, uh, so especially as the oldest and it, you're in this uh, religious, uh, somewhat performative environment. And so those are just kind of the things that I got good feedback from, from other people uh, was, Christianity and faith and responding to these things and so that really became like my identity is I was like the good one I was the one who uh, identified with those uh, tenants of, and you know knew them uh, uh, so that that kind of became who I was and so in my my own faith journey I don't while I feel like the seed of faith was planted in my life uh, early on it didn't really germinate until later uh, until I was removed from that environment all that positive reinforcement from all around me and I was left with the question is that really who I am is that who I'm choosing to be or instead is that just who everyone wanted me to be and who I chose to do that so um, I went to uh, a university public state school and it's not like I went off the deep end and, you know, prodigal son story and everything, but I did kind of shift into like neutral for a while where there was not a lot of my own initiative and in things. 
um, in reading scriptures or praying myself or gathering with other believers in any sort of worship, uh, whether it was a church thing or small group. It just wasn't what I was choosing. And it's funny because, the whole, you know, at that time, especially, uh, I still am to an extent now, but at that time, I was really, you know, a, a consistent journaler. And I did feel like something was missing, um, which makes sense because that's what my life had been. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you know, I'm looking for replacements or things. But I had the thought, you know, or the realization, the knowledge deep down that something was missing. And, and I even would explicitly write about like, maybe it is God or maybe it is, uh, you know, faith uh, of something. But then I would just never pursue it. So, again, in this kind of neutral gear. And it wasn't until, and this was something that was really absent from my childhood, just because of the way that in family dynamics or at school, or um, I was always kind of in a gap where there were younger folks than me or older kids than me who were maybe serious about their faith or involved in groups. But I was always kind of just in this weird by myself, <laughs> or it felt like by myself, uh, gap. And, and so it wasn't until in college, I met other people my age who were serious about their faith and serving the Lord that, I mean, I can distinctly remember the, the first conversation that I had with a couple of, of these guys where didn't know them at all, but came into a, a period where I was staying with them for some early coming down to school for some um you know before the semester activities and just within 30 seconds of talking to like this one guy in particular uh dan i it was like i had i knew what i was missing something and in in 30 seconds of his conversation it was like he's got what i don't have and i don't i need to press into that or find it and it was just that his his speech was seasoned with like the spirit with just like this grace that wasn't it was just different. And uh, so I, I really look at that time as, okay, that's where I became serious about my faith for myself, took ownership of it. Um, and so that was all through college. And uh, so I was involved in a campus ministry at the time, got involved uh, with serving with them after graduation, and then ended up going to seminary and was graduating right about the time that um I mean, from 2016 onwards, uh, just so much kind of, I don't have to go into all of it or name all of it, but just uh, turmoil of people, things going on on this big national scale in all these different areas. And it's interesting. I've, I've been asked about before, you know, was, was there a connection between those, uh, like, what was going on in the national stage, not just generally, but like just with Christianity, what was making the news? What were uh, we seeing as far as um, people uh, aligning with different camps or kind of resorting? I feel like there's just been this great reshuffling that's gone on um, in a lot of ways for a lot of people in these last few years. And uh, did that have anything to do with, because I, I did not immediately after graduation, you know, pursue ministry. Um, and it had to do with where we were, like as a family at, at the time, um, it had been my turn to go to school. And then so it was my wife's turn and, you know, kind of doing that swap. <laughs> and, um, and so on the surface, there were areas where that was just, oh, it made sense to go these directions. Um, and so when I was asked that, I said, oh, no, I don't think that, that really had anything to do with a hesitancy or but looking back, I think there were aspects of it where I was like, what does it look like to do ministry in a world like this? You know, what does it look like to say I'm a representative of God, the divine, uh, the, the spiritual and see other very prominent representatives on a you know kind of national scale be just doing things where it's like, how is that reflective of how are we looking at the same Bible and coming to these different conclusions? So it took a few years um, to kind of sort some of that out. And, and um, I wouldn't say that I've gone there. People use the term deconstruction and that you have to really define your terms, right? What does it mean? And where are you going with it? And what, what, so, you know, I don't want to throw that out there and, and 
bring all all of the assumptions with it but there definitely has been at at the very least like a disentangling for me i think um kind of there what's all of this that has uh, i thought was connected intrinsically but really actually it's kind of layers of you know let's peel back and get to kind of a source here um and and what is necessary what is this core that we can go forward so there's been a process of that and god opening up the opportunity after several years for me to step into ministry uh i'm bivocational so you know i work full-time um but i'm a i'm a music minister and uh so it's i think it's there's been healing in that um where before with our prior church context i was still serving but it wasn't in an area where um I wasn't on staff or I wasn't a pastor or anything. Um, but there was still just like some, you know, any group that you get together, there's going to be friction or ways that things don't go well, or how did, where's the spirit leading in that? I thought that I was hearing this and you thought that you were hearing that. And what do we do with that? So um, I think we came out of that time uh, just a few years ago in that season where I wasn't, you know, serving in the same capacity that I am now needing some time, some space, uh, and healing. And I feel like that's been the, the story of the last most recent few years is having that space and now this area to serve more. Um, so I, I, that's a, you know, testimony to faithfulness, um, of the Lord in meeting me in particular, but just us as a family too, in that of providing that for us, um, and I, I know that I'm by no means alone in that being a, a story of, you know, what the past few years have looked like. Um, but, you know, that's that's part of my story. So, yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, I'll not uh, <laughs> belabor it at this point. But um, but I think just to kind of wrap it up a little bit that I was one of those people who thought, oh, my my journey um, I don't really have a, a story about it, or I don't really have a testimony. You know, there's that pressure to have this, this story of God saving you out of something big, or, you know, I, I did have this big rebellion, and I came back, and it's like, well, we all have our story, and it looks different for everybody, um, mm -hmm. and so that is um, part of my journey, and there doesn't have to be pressure to, for it to be anything that it's not, um, but at the same time, I have seen in the past four, five, six years, like a deepening or just a, a, yeah, I guess deepening is, is the word for it of some of these themes or opportunities of like, okay, that's clearly there. God's faithfulness was always there, but this is seeing it in some new dimensions or new ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, it's kind of weird because there a lot of people are like, oh, well, there has to be a testimony. And I'm like, but there's like lots of us that like never really necessarily fell away. Um, like I'm not really somebody who fell away. I mean, there's been key turning points in my life, certainly. Um, like I decided to join the Methodist church when I read the Methodist social principles. I was like, I want to be a Methodist. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my turning point. Um, mm -hmm. And then I remember receiving my call to ministry and being like, oh no <laughs> but um yeah there and one of the nice things about kind of the last few years some people are deconstructing others are reconstructing it, it's it's given people an opportunity to really re-examine their faith and like you said grow deeper in some cases find those connect with those roots that have already you know been out there right. um Lots of people are like, oh, well, I just learned that you can do this. I'm like, yes, honey, somebody wrote about that 200 years ago. Um, <laughs> welcome to the club. Um, <laughs> I'm like, congratulations, you caught up. <laughs> yeah, um, and speaking of like the things that have, you know, the, the reconstructions that we've had to do in the last several years, like Josh, you, you, you touched on something that I think is going to be universal to most people listening to this, that the world became a different place in 2016. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. at least in America, 
Yeah. Like we, and, and especially among American Christians, we all had to figure out a different identity that was, that was unique to us. And we had to figure out who we really are when who we don't want to be was being thrown so hard in our face. And then after January 6th, that became so much more true. Like we have not, there has never been a time in American Christian history where we have had to dig so deeply into who we really are than now, you know, uh, for are you sure because well (laughs) you know what yeah there have been there have been a few not in my lifetime let me put it that way millennial but not in my lifetime because i didn't live in the 19th century but i did live (laughs) (laughs) but it is and yeah and i mean the civil war is the last time we schismed and now we're doing it again Uh yep that's true Mm mm-hmm yeah, and there has been um, just a, a revealing, and there have been times before um, that, you know, in this nation, other nations, that, that we've, they've gone through similar things. But like you're saying, the, the differences, those are on the page. Those are things we're learning about, or and then this is what we're experiencing. So, of course, for what we feel, it is the most, it is the greatest, it is the, and it has the most impact on us. Um and so how do we navigate that? And what do we do with those questions? Um, you know, are they going to mm-hmm. destroy everything? Or are we just going to kind of ignore them and they'll have no effect? Or is there some middle ground where it's like, okay, what is the truth there? Um, mm-hmm. And how does that impact the way that I live and even identify myself? I think that's one of the, and I'm going to segue kind of sideways into this. I think that's one of the interesting things about um, the works of Tolkien is there's this kind of sense and it really comes into play actually, I think at the end of the return of the King where the hobbits have to make a decision together as a community of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to like relearn how to be in community with each other after there was that, you know, the takeover of Saruman of Sharky. they have to, not only do they have to fight their battles to regain control of their own territory, they also have to decide, okay, like, who's going to be in charge? You know, how are we going to make things right? What are we going to do? Um, and that's always hard work um, in a community. So um, I think that's one of the nice things about it is that, you know, Tolkien does give us an overview of like a small group of just regular everyday people trying to make things right again in the face of egregious wrong. Um, but that's just like something we have to do every day. Not every day is full of egregious wrong. Some it's just kind of the low level getting on with your life kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But that is exactly, um, you know, the world has changed for, for them, you know, and our, our four main hobbits, uh, Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin, like they have themselves been changed by these huge world defining, uh, you know, epic level events. But then it does really, that's the whole point. How does it come back to your everyday life? Um, And as I love the Peter Jackson films, and I completely understand the reasons that go into it, we didn't need seven or eight endings to the return of the king uh you know we had plenty already i get it however like the scouring of the shire is the whole point of the story um yeah how it changes your community and um yourself and and exactly what you're talking about like rebuilding what do we do who are we as a community and going forward and then like can we reintegrate ourselves back into something like this um you know and the answer is being different for each of the hobbits um you know mary and pippin yep they it it it's even a good thing for them you know in the sense that they're raised to a prominence going forward that they would not have enjoyed um whereas for frodo you know i would have saved the the shire but but not for me um you know he can't go back he it's too he's too far gone and then sam being kind of in the middle of those two of being able to have this life that he builds and being mayor seven times and you know and having, having the, 11 billion children right exactly <laughs> in the the hobbit hole with the white picket fence yeah um, kind of thing. 
Um, but then still having that level of like not truly being at home here and eventually following Frodo um, over the sea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a great connection. And and just really one of the things that I so appreciate about Tolkien is seeing depicted like what was he going through? Well, both World War One and World War Two, he was having personally mm-hmm. to do these same things for his family, his son who fought in the war, uh, the society at large, they were grappling with those same questions. And so here he's taking mm-hmm. what he's seeing and experiencing and channeling it into his fiction. And then we can draw from it um, ourselves in analogous uh, situations for mm-hmm. our time. I think that's one of the, whenever I read certain descriptions, like things like the dead marshes and like um, the story of, you know, Mordor and what that looks like. I'm like, he's writing about this from his personal experience. He basically saw this in real life um, as somebody who lived through the first world war. And um, remember reading or listening to um, the hardcore histories podcast series about world war one. And just Mm -hmm. basically like, how those poor men were living in hell on earth. Yes. And yeah. um, at one point, I think he mentioned in his own memoir, by the time I was like 25, all but one of my close friends was dead. Yeah. And kind of somehow he came out of that with this still powerful sense of of goodness, of mm-hmm. faith in the goodness of the world and faith, faith in God as being a person or um, a force a deity that in whom you could trust in spite of this nightmare that he had lived through. Right. Yeah. It's so clear, especially in his earliest writings, like one of the first, one of the first things that he was working on, and this was uh, in the trenches and immediately afterwards was the story of the fall of Gondolin. Yes. Um, So one of his earliest ones, and you read those early drafts and in these armies of orcs and Balrogs and everything, there's like fire dragons, like mechanized mm-hmm. fire. Like those are tanks. Those are, you know, so it doesn't make it into the later drafts of things. Um, mm-hmm. But just that's how it started. Him kind of using this fantasy world that he's creating uh, to process some of these things, to inspire mm-hmm. some of it. Um, and then even though he dials back on those in what's published and even lots of the versions of things later, it still is very apparent, like you're saying, like, the dead marshes yeah uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the 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 battlefields that he himself saw and and walked through mordor and everything associated with the mechanization of isengard and technology like all of this is he saw it writ large on the world stage and personally and is trying to grapple with what does that look like and like you said still seeing the goodness but you know, where does that come from and how, what is our responsibility and in all of this, what can we do as, um, you know, the hobbits standing in for us as the small people in the world, a world full of big people. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am just as a side note, and we don't have to go down this direction, but there are two chapters in Lord of the Rings and I'm not really a big, like, Oh, I'm scared of horror things. There are two chapters in Lord of the Rings that I will not read after dark. Oh. And one is Frog on the Barrow Downs and the other one is the Dead Marshes. Yeah. I'm like, I'll read Stephen King. I'll read, you know, lots of different right. horror, but those chapters I will not read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I agree. They're a little bit of like, they stick with you. Yes. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's something that like, I don't think he gets enough credit for as being a good horror writer as uh, well right. as many other yeah. things. Um, yeah so um so i think one of the in lord of the rings and in the silmarillion which the silmarillion is kind of wild and i actually understood the silmarillion a lot better once i watched part of wagner's like the ring of the nibelung i was uh like watching some of that and i'm like you know i'm watching this opera and i'm like oh wait this is basically tour and torn bar and this <laughs> exactly. guy is basically you know Gollum, uh-huh. and this right. guy is basically you know so and so um but uh, one of the there there's a couple of things that i think are powerful in lord of the rings and it, it they kind of head in two directions one is this um sense of like 
fallenness can always happen. The world is marred. Arda is marred. Um, the, you know, the elves had their eternal undying, um, like regrets and, um, you know, in spite of having the rings, they have to let things go and they have to move on. Um, but, you know, there's the faithfulness and the good and the love um, in spite of that. But then also there's kind of this weird sense of like, we're not going to really talk about certain types of, of sin that that emerge, the, the kind of weird strains that are really more mythic that kind of emerge from him. Uh, like the papering over of the divine right of kings, like Aragorn and Arwen, like they are the rightful rulers of Gondor because, oh, they just happened to be descended however closely or far away from like a divine being mm -hmm. or like, you know, the story of Aragorn kind of stands in contrast to the story of the hobbits because Sam is like, was a gardener and then he was raised up into leadership. Yeah. Um, or like how a kingdom is like somehow preferable to something else, um, <laughs> another form of government. Or also um, how mechanization is kind of like equated with sin, but that's not necessarily always the case. Mechanization has led to many things that are negative in our world, but also have led to things that are positive, like public health initiatives, sanitation, vaccines, technologies that keep people alive and keep us healthy. Um, so there's this weird kind of like tension, I feel like in his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you could um, looking at them, the, the Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion, his other works through some of those lenses, you could say, wow, Tolkien is really like um, not a downer necessarily, uh, but he is not he's like pessimistic about progress or oh boy, yes, he is. some of these um like you were saying technologies or um even the human capacity to use them um mm -hmm. and so i think there are both strains of like you were talking about insight there because he's very very wary of power yes power always corrupts po power mm -hmm whoever has it there are very few ex exceptions but taking power even used justly for a while inevitably leads to like problems and whether that's infighting or corruption or both or uh kin slayings or civil yes. wars or whatever you want to put in that bracket um and, you know, obviously it's exemplified by the One Ring, uh, ultimate power mm -hmm. for whoever possesses it. But our heroes are the ones who would refuse it, who would say, I cannot handle power. Gandalf mm -hmm. and um, Galadriel both refusing power. Uh, Faramir as well being somebody who yes. I, I wouldn't take it if it was lying by the highway, you know? <laughs> I just yeah. Get this it. thing the hell out of my country, please. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, carry on. Uh, and and even uh, the the ones who were least uh, tempted by it and most resistant to it, uh, Frodo and Bilbo, being eventually corrupted by it because that's what power eventually does. Um, and so there, mm -hmm. I think there is insight in that um, because it's just a, a realistic look at the fallenness of our natures as humans. So there is like this reflection mm -hmm. of we are living in a fallen world and we are doing that. But then you look at, like you're saying specifically uh, technology or government and Tolkien is definitely, uh, I mean, he, I was just reading the other day, one of his letters to his son, Christopher, who was in the RAF. So he's a pilot. Um, yes. And, Tolkien just writing in dismay of the whole idea of an air force. Uh, he says something along the lines of, I don't, I don't have the, the quote in front of me. Um, but he's just talking about the technology in, in planes. And he's saying, mm. learning about it for me is something along the lines of uh, hearing if I were, if one were to hear of hobbits learning to fly, fell beasts in defense of the Shire, you know, these Nazgul mounts. Um, mm -hmm. just that, like there's just evilness in this whole idea of technology and 
and he that's so of, fascinating. I know it's just that like, was his psyche. <laughs> and you and of course, there's all kinds of things about uh, context and uh, you know, in the middle of a war and the destruction mm-hmm. that comes from it that you look at. But then you say, but look at the good that did come out of that. Look at the travel that's come and all of the technological mm-hmm. advances and the ways that the world has come together because of these things. But it's just so overshadowed by even just technology in general and so it it, Mm -hmm. but it really is I think the uses of it that in his mind to an extent it's just set in opposition to things like um the the pastoral um the the natural the the Mm -hmm. world itself and Mm -hmm. that there's just this inevitable conflict that he sees between the two and mm-hmm. if he's gonna pick one i mean the guy who can go on and on for pages about description of trees like i guess it yep. doesn't surprise me that much <laughs> that mm-hmm. he's so wary of um technology mm-hmm. and it's it, and uh it's interesting you you bring up the the temptation of the ring and that temptation of the corruption of power and christ was tempted in the desert by by lucifer and one of the major things that that christ was tempted by was power i will give you all the kingdoms of the world they will bow down to you um and so somebody had mentioned the other day that there's like groups of prosperity gospel types who are like god wants you as a christian to like be in charge of the world and be rich and be powerful and somebody pointed out that lucifer was like i literally tempted jesus with this and he said no so you know it's a matter I, i think you're right it's a matter of finding the balance and maybe that's kind of the lessons that lord of the rings brings us is that sense of like we have to find the balance between you know technology and what it does in the world we have to find a balance between like community and like individual ambition we have to find a way of being in community together um in a kind of in a way that engages with that mutuality and that respect for god's creation am i just talking out of my butt here i don't know (laughs) sorry (laughs) no 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 i there there definitely is that idea of needing to because you can't completely reject all of it wholesale i mean to an extent even the the works of the that although they do at times lead to these evils um the the great works of the elves and and the dwarves and and the race of men and just in creating the things that they did and there is they are still used for good at points i mean even thinking mm-hmm. of the quote technology of the the day um mm-hmm. there are good uses for it it's just are are those the things that will lead to triumph over you know the forces of evil are they the things to depend on are they the things to i think at least from tolkien's perspective there are deeper things at work then you know what we can create or use and while there are advantages to those there are many dangers and so even the awareness i think is part of that balance of mm-hmm. just thinking about what will this do to me to use this technology yes. to use this influence or power that i have or and how can i uh, steward it and maybe pass it on instead of holding it to myself mm-hmm. And there have been times where, say, I've been offered jobs where I've been like, what would it do to me to take this job? Right. I would not do well in this job. Yeah. It would change who I am. Um, right. And I'm sure some of our listeners can relate to that. And mm-hmm. sometimes people have taken jobs and then regretted it because they're like, right. this changed who I am. And I didn't recognize who I became. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, the And you can just see that. I mean, if you view the joining the fellowship as taking a job, you know, like what did it do yeah. to member <laughs> who was part of that and how did it change them? Or so there is really that idea of the impact. Like you're saying. I'm also hearing something about how power is really relative. 
since Jess brought up Matthew 4 and Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, because the Satan character, and to be clear to our listeners, whether or not you believe in the literal existence of Satan is kind of up to your interpretation. I personally don't, but the Satan character um, also tempts, so he tempts Jesus with a, a couple of different things, with all of these towns could be yours if you, if you, if you bow down to me, you could jump off of this mountain and not get hurt uh, if you submit to me. And uh, all of these pieces of, all these stones could become bread. Like, so, I mean, depending on what you're already starting with, to somebody who's starving, being able to feed themselves is power. You know, so even uh, even the smallest, even the smallest little thing like being able to take care of your body is enough to cause corruption under the wrong circumstances. Yeah, that's a great point about the different scales of power, Mm -hmm. because obviously this representation of power in the ring is like this Mm -hmm. world spanning civilizational, you know, fate level. But there's also other examples of the impact of of power and kind of the scope of it um even to the extent of you know what are our heroes uh tempted by what are the things that they they desire where does it come out of like um temptation to take the ring is to save his his people to to help them or or what does what is sam tempted by when the ring tempts him it's this vision of like the world as a garden you know like taking Mm -hmm. who he is and what he wants and and putting it in this scale um that that is like personal and that is and ultimately what are they all trying to do they're trying to save their home uh too and so yeah it's um just because something isn't to that level of, you know, I'll give you all the kingdom of the world doesn't mean there's temptation there or that it isn't, doesn't have that effect to, you know, change us or impact us like that. Well, and that most of us get pulled, if we get pulled in the direction of corruption, we get pulled by, by something deep in our heart. Yeah. And we get pulled by something that feels good and altruistic at first. And I mean, just to kind of, at the risk of sounding a little bit snarky, but that happens sometimes <laughs> on podcast. Jess can tell you that too. Um, it, 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 when I, you know, this image of taking the ring and, and doing with it what you're, what you're tempted to do. Uh, uh, clergy have seen many, many different versions of what happens when your colleague or even yourself picks up the ring, you know, and uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of uh, commentary that can come from that with, you know, the before and after of somebody who was living into a, an earnest, heartfelt mission, but then they got this taste of power yeah, and went with it. Yeah. Oh boy, we've seen personally the results of that a lot in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I'm just t- speaking specifically about our own church in our own mm-hmm. region. It's mm-hmm. been yes. pretty, pretty grim outcomes, unfortunately. Right. So. Yes. Yes. But I mean, but I mean, even going back to like, so, you know, something that's bigger for everybody, like the, the prosperity gospel is very much what happens when a, when a, when a greedy, zealous pastor picks up the ring and, and then you become Creflo dollar in your private jet, telling people that you need a second private jet. So they need to keep donating to your ministry. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, another theme in Tolkien is that whatever that personal pull is um, at the council of Elrond, Elrond is kind of hypothesizing and he, and he says uh, for nothing is evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. Yes. Uh, And even our biggest bad, our most evil of all, like he starts as this equivalent to an angel um, this equivalent to a, a, a divine being who really, after being, you know, in the service of the the original big bad, you know, Sauron starts as the uh, assistant to the Dark Lord and not the, you know, assistant Dark sure. Lord. Uh, but he, um, after being kind of freed from his uh, service, 
he's given a chance to repent and he considers it, but he looks out at the world and he sees it needs to be ordered. It it needs mm-hmm. to be controlled. It needs to be fixed. And, and the Valar aren't stepping in to do that. Well, why don't I do that? And that's where, mm-hmm. and so even for him, this temptation of wanting things controlled and orderly and organized and turns into this falling into a second and worse because he's not serving somebody else uh darkness and and corruption and so even for our big bad there is that like well what was his like personal bent that brings him back into darkness mm-hmm. and how close was you know Aule to doing that by creating the dwarves for right. instance yeah his bent mm-hmm. as well to you know oh i want to you know what he loves to do to create uh and his love for uh, Iluvatar's plans for having mm-hmm. children. Well, I want to participate in that. I want to, mm-hmm. but getting out in front of, and even needing to repent. Yes. Um, and Iluvatar being like, I will adopt your kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they're going to be the adopted kids. They're not going to be. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> I know. They're not the firstborn. Yeah. Or dwarves. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, And. I think, you know, it's a good thing you said that, that originally Sauron was not so. And I think all the times about like the people who do evil in the world. And so I have a five-year-old, an almost five-year-old and a one-year-old. And I'm like, every evil person in the world started out as a baby. Yes. They were just a baby. They were just a little kid. And yes, I what, am. what happened? What happened? You know? <laughs> no, but Jess, I am laughing my ass off that the sentence started with you know i'm thinking about all the evil in the world and then i look at my five-year-old the mom brain and we went in a different direction <laughs> you know no, my, the walls my, my five-year-old is definitely not evil no 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 but i think it being a parent and looking at this if you don't mind me saying so it's like there's, there's, a, there's a couple of different layers, and I'm literally saying this with my four-year-old sleeping on my shoulder for the benefit of the listeners, <laughs> um, because I can see a, a lot of things. I can see how we start off good and innocent, or at least blank and pure, and then find corruption at some point in life. But I can also see how that's almost a natural process, that you, you can't live your life completely blank and innocent, because you might not get into so much trouble, but you also wouldn't be able to defend yourself either. Um, but then I can also see, you know, the, the, the probably the, you know, the, the, the greatest source of, of, you know, why, why we seek power is, is the closest to home. Like if there was one thing that would make me pick up the ring, you know, if such a thing existed and if either I was in Middle Earth or if Middle Earth came here, the one thing that would tempt me to pick up the ring would be if I could do something that would benefit my kids. You know, listeners of this podcast know that I have an autistic child and we have a lot of struggles as a family um, with, you know, helping him live his best life with his disability. If there was, if picking up the ring could, you know, magically at the snap of my fingers, you know, create a perfect school system that would give him the ideal education and a perfectly accessible world where he would never face barriers again caused by people's prejudice or ignorance. And, you know, a a straight shot into a career path where he'll thrive as a grown up. Oh yeah, I'm grabbing that ring. And, and I mean, even knowing if it might end badly for somebody else, well, screw them because it'll help my kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that part exists in every parent, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think that's where we have to be cautious. As Christians, as Americans, we really do have to be cautious and say, wait, and like step back for a minute and be like, wait, what? what does this ultimately mean for who I am, for how I relate to my community, for who I am as a Christian, my relationship with God? Yeah, right. It gives, yeah. on the one hand, just that relatability um, to that question, because we can all imagine those circumstances ourselves where, yes. all right, dispassionately, academic exercise 
using power like this is bad and has bad effects. And then you put it in your own context and say, all right, what is the thing that would make me do that? That would tempt, would be an actual temptation for me. And then saying, oh, okay. Um, and, and trying to say, well, are those the places? And they typically are. Um, but asking ourselves, are those the places where God's asking me to let go, uh, to look to his power for those things, um, or to be, you know, fill in the blank with what the spiritual discipline would be or the spiritual application, but to say all, all taking power is saying those who are in power here on this plane, but ultimately go up the ladder and it's all the way to God, they're not getting it right. And so I will fix it. You know, the, the Thanos fine, I'll do it myself. Uh, kind yes. Of, uh, yes. Approach. To, to cross out into a different, right. uh, <laughs> into a different <laughs> fandom, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah. So what, what is uh, being asked of me in this or how, how can I bring this back to what I am asked to do as, as a Christian, as a believer, how do I reconcile those things with what I say that I believe? Yeah. You have to follow, you have to face down the golem or the Sauron within yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, all of us. Right. I mean, what a temptation, uh, what a perfect picture of temptation, right? Smeagol, mm -hmm. Gollum, knowing the right thing uh, or the thing you, you shouldn't be doing. And yet that voice promising to you conspiring with you convincing you or maybe even you being that voice and needing you know mm -hmm. trying to convince yourself of it um but yeah mm -hmm. having yes. that struggle and then realizing i just love that like built baked into that whole story the story of the lord of the rings is this idea that providence is working in ways that even when we fail, Frodo's a, a hero who fails. He fails. He he mm -hmm. take as far as he went. He was the one who could go the furthest with it, and yet he doesn't get there. He claims the ring for himself. the The work of providence still works out in that circumstance. He knew that was going to happen, and here's mm -hmm. how: even your failure is worked into this greater good uh, even mm -hmm. Lutar saying at the beginning of, of time all the discord all of the extra themes in this music that is not of mine will i, I'm, I will work it into my own will like what you mm -hmm. meant for evil you know i've worked for mm -hmm. good the lord has worked for good so i just love that that's it's not a story of the the great heroes who do their hero thing and and win because they're so good and heroic but of the mm -hmm the ways that the the greater forces work with us and use us and, and even save us from ourselves. That's such a wonderful point. Um, the fact that, you know, Frodo does in fact fail and that the person who actually ultimately carries out the destruction of the ring is Gollum, um, which I have to laugh because the description of him is just like the last thing he does. It's like you hear this receding voice go, Pretty <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like a cartoon, you know. <laughs> but um, this is something that I really, really think about because I, you know, being a Methodist, I don't come from the divine providence. God has a plan for everything. Everything that happens in the yeah. world is because of God's goodwill. And it's like, there's an awful lot of really horrible stuff that happens in the world, y'all. Yeah. Uh -huh. But um, like I talked to one of my friends who's actually a Lutheran pastor at one point, and he said, you know, God is like trying to always trying to entice us to move like in a good direction. You know, we have the free will. And I, I if you're not, you know, if you're not like free will person, apologies. But, you know, <laughs> we have the will to participate in that. And God is always trying to entice us like this for us, this Methodist, it's prevenient grace, mm -hmm. um, trying to entice us and trying to like put good things out into the universe so it's like it's not a plan necessarily per se but there's this like force and will of good in the universe that is trying to push us back towards wholeness and completion and and um relationship mm -hmm. so 
that's I'm glad you pointed that out because I think it's really critical. Yeah, I think whatever uh, side of that that you fall on, whatever system you would sort yourself into, one of the things that we have to do, and this is just good um, biblical application, exegesis, um, is to say in the text of the scriptures, I see both. I see both God's plan displayed and, and talked about, but I see mm -hmm. the, the will of, of humans working in that. And so on whichever side mm -hmm. uh, we find ourselves, we have to remind ourselves that's not all that's that's there. That's not all that yeah. there are these ideas of, there are these reminders of if, if you're feeling, oh, you know, uh, on, on the one hand, oh, everything is uh, you know, predetermined, I don't need to do anything. It's like, no, there are calls for response. There are like, come on, let's come back to the other side. And, <laughs> and correspondingly, if it's, oh, it's all up to me. Uh, it's complete will. It is, there's that reminder. No, God is working. Mm -hmm. He does have his plan. He is. Mm -hmm. And so we just, you know, come back to the reality of if it's displayed there in the story, in the text, how do I remind myself of the fuller picture and not just what I like mm -hmm. to focus on or what I uh, understand best or agree with most. So. And there's definitely an element of like, well, I'm in control. I'm the one that makes this happen. Mm -hmm. I make my own luck, blah, blah, blah. And that just like, I don't think is borne out by reality at all oh, because no, no. chaotic bad things do happen out of nowhere. And yeah. sometimes you get lucky and somebody times somebody else who's doing the same thing does not get as lucky. Right. And the divergence there so mm -hmm. it's a good reminder that the just world hypothesis is false <laughs> so <laughs> um because um good things sometimes bad things sometimes happen to good people and for no good reason so um yes. so I, I don't think we touched we're cl getting close to an hour now and i don't think mm -hmm. we touched on kind of like the big weird question that I had um <laughs> but I was like I was not sure if we wanted to even go down oh. that direction at all um I'm I'm open but... to yeah so I had this big goofy weird question and um <clears throat> here this is ending number one now we're gonna head into ending number two no <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> so I had said um Tolkien seems to be the side of Part of a side of English literature, which is like um, thinking of Beatrix Potter, um, who wrote the, you know, Peter Rabbit stories, A.A. A. Milne, which is Winnie the Pooh, um, and then C.S. Lewis, which is Narnia, which isn't specifically about England itself, but to me feels very, his stories feel very English. Oh, yeah. um, they have this view of English life and people as being gentle and upstanding and kind of pastoral, but this is like directly in contrast with the violent hi internal history of England itself. Um, say, how the English government responded to internal poverty um, during the 19th century, um, specifically thinking of like the workhouses and how brutally it built its empire like across the world. And it, I, I just like it's these two things just stand in very, very distinct contrast to me. And I feel like there's a warning. And obviously, as Americans, we've kind of taken over that imperialist role in the world mm -hmm. and which feels very Numenorean sometimes late Numenorean to me mm -hmm. and so how do we find a way to balance out like this kind of beautiful pastoral side with kind of this evil nasty power side um I just I can't seem to reconcile the two it's very weird <laughs> yeah yeah no it is um there just those tensions there um within <laughs> the the broader context uh but that you even might look and see in the the story itself whether it's the lord of the rings or the larger legendarium i think there's a couple um just interesting things to to pick at and see where they you know which threads go somewhere um but first being that i mean i can't speak uh to the others that you you mentioned even c.s lewis i'm not quite as familiar with like his own thoughts um and positions because you know you different styles of reader criticism right you can look at the text mm -hmm. as let's completely divorce it from anything about the historical circumstances or the author or let's read mm -hmm. it basically everything that uh happened in their life we're gonna try and find an analog uh, an analogy or something you know or somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle. sure yeah. 
it makes sense that something about the background of the author would come into it, but uh, maybe it doesn't control our interpretation. So there's the whole gamut of it. But I do think just that Tolkien himself had some very interesting ideas um, on government and was not at all a fan of uh, imperialism or empire himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he, in a letter to his son, Christopher, so like it's interesting tracing his ideas over the course of World War II because obviously he'd had them uh, affected by things before then. Um, but in 1943, he's writing to his son, Christopher, saying, my political opinions lean more and more to anarchy and then in parentheses philosophically understood meaning abolition of control not whiskered mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. so he's saying not uh, violent anarchy but uh let's you know get rid of um at what he terms uh, his preference being like quote unconstitutional monarchy so we're kind of getting back to the divine right of kings there um mm-hmm. but basically his ideal system of government is like localized government kind of like the shire uh where there's mm-hmm. basically nothing going on um except for like this mayor who's mainly a figurehead and delivered is the postmaster and stuff as well <laughs> and then some king far off like aragorn who is good at his job but also kind of doesn't really bother you at all and these are like personal preferences but i think it's interesting you know and maybe more analytic than actually practical um mm, say, well, sure how would that work um yeah <laughs> but it does give you an insight on him um because he's saying that's kind of my preference um and he's also saying like later on um that the the most improper job of any man even saints uh, is bossing other men not one in a million is fit for it and least of all those who seek the opportunity um so just that mm. that's, even if you want to rule uh that's exactly what shouldn't be happening uh, but um just some other comments from him saying like i love england not great britain though and certainly not the british commonwealth this is a, a letter from 1943 and then fascinating in 1945 towards the end of the war him saying again to christopher I know nothing about British or American imperialism in the Far East that does not fill me with regret and disgust. And I am mm. afraid I'm not even supported by a glimmer of patriotism in this remaining war. I would not subscribe a penny to it, let alone a son were I a free man. Mm. Um, so him That's having powerful. personal, yeah, like distaste for and kind of like resistance to empire um but then Mm -hmm. also like within his works displaying things we've already talked about power corrupting um Mm -hmm. so put that on a national scale um and it it just think of all the empires that you can think of all the great nations throughout tolkien's works and which of them come to good ends so few of them all of them start yeah. with noble and <laughs> you know and great pedigrees and and there's just this long slow or sudden at times uh corruption um but like for a very specific example which empire am i describing here it's an island nation with a special blessing from god that explores and then colonizes much of the world at first under the pretense of sharing their knowledge and attempting to educate other lesser humans but eventually establishing settlements after conquering and killing the dark men whose languages they cannot understand growing more and more powerful and arrogant until they're the most powerful nation in the world like is that england or numenor right exactly that's the point and um just the fact that that's that's his take on empire uh, Mm -hmm. is and then the the fate the judgment of uh numenor Mm -hmm. I think that that's where we look can look to in Tolkien to see uh, those the critiques of those things. But then I think just the story of the Lord of the Rings, like we've talked about already, shows us all right on the national stage, on the 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 events of great men uh, and great women, great beings, angelic or uh, demonic. You know, the, this these struggles. Okay, so empire's not good. What do I do then? You know, what's my place? Mm -hmm. That's overwhelming. That's back to this, like, all right, if I'm just the hobbit in this situation, what do I do? Well, just be faithful in in what I am. And yes, Mm -hmm. maybe that means being invited into 
this big quest that has world spanning mm -hmm. conflicts or but i mean here a hero that we don't uh hear enough about fatty fatty bulger the fifth uh hobbit you know <laughs> yeah oh poor fatty right his his part is to help them get out of the shire and then that's it like that's what he plays but he does it faithfully he does it well mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so even if we're and then like, they like starved him in the in the lock holes <laughs> yeah. poor guy exactly so he's got suffering that he's going through also and mm -hmm. um yeah just those pictures of faithfulness on that level what is it that we are asked to do how do we step into it and mm -hmm. then do it do it well do it faithfully do it in accordance with our values and lives so he's so very interesting this... on empire um yeah this question and i hadn't really thought of him as kind of being a an anti-imperialist or like a imperial critical voice before but i'm so glad that you took the time and looked that up because now I'm like oh this is super cool although people who are listening who are huge Tolkien nerds will be like well what about the jerk the orc genocide and the fact that like all of the imperial enemies of like you know Gondor are people of color which yeah <laughs> uh, true true critiques there um, right which is so and fascinating the, because the Tolkien himself was born in South Africa That's you know funny. he was like um cared for um by black tribal families um lived with them so that's interesting <laughs> right it's a separate question i won't spend mm -hmm. as much time as i'd like to on it but just in a few yeah. seconds it's a problem tolkien himself recognized because yeah, he had origins for orcs but then as they became more and more human even having conversations throughout his stories he said uh oh if they're rational beings what does that mean and it was a problem. Be redeemed. Yes, yes. So he worked on it his whole life. He never came to a satisfactory um, answer. Um, but it is, it, it's a valid critique, but it's one he had of his own work. Mm -hmm. And was attempting to solve. So. Bless him. But there's a one, one quote that I kept coming back to during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And even now, it still really gives me a lot of strength. And reminders you know um that i think might be a good place to to end on um unless you want to tell us a little bit about god afterwards <laughs> um so such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world small hands do them because they must while the eyes of the great are elsewhere i believe gandalf says that to frodo at one point um it's been extremely poignant for me because it's like you just do what you got to do small no matter how small your hands are and no matter how small the deeds are you do what you have to do because that's how the world changes mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it's a great <laughs> great thought i think that's from the council of elrond chapter um when they're saying what do we do you know and mm -hmm. what could we do and exactly that that yeah sometimes it's those big the great you know figures but oftentimes it is those small hands that are moving off the mm -hmm. board um so i i don't feel like i'm at the center of all these you know world changing events or what but i have things in front of me i have just the next step i have just the next opportunity like you're saying for faithfulness so mm -hmm. yeah very encouraging before we go ending number three <laughs> 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 what would you like to know the uh, the world to know about God? This is all we always end, and I think it's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, and what first comes to mind is I just last week uh, a subscriber left a comment um, on my most recent uh, Substack post, and I was asking just about you know quotes that have stayed with people and so this particular guy I uh, was just reading through Kierkegaard's journals and uh just this short observation from sometime at the end of his life he says this is all that I've known for certain that God is love even if I've been mistaken on this or that point God is nevertheless love um so you, you know that's just encouraging to me what 
I'm going to get things wrong. I have plenty of times and I will in the future, but whatever that looks like, however that impacts myself or others, God is nevertheless love. You can put whatever you want before that. Whatever the, the first part is, God is nevertheless love. Natalie, I think everybody says God as love when they finish. And that is so great. I love it so much. <laughs> it, it is so great. That is a note that we repeatedly return to in this podcast and not by accident. But it, and it doesn't get any less beautiful every time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't say it enough. Mm -hmm. Josh, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us today. It has been so much fun. Yeah. So great. I've had a blast. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Natalie. Really, thank really you. Fun. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Um... Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.